Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So we have been doing a book club this summer with some weekly uh, posts on our Patreon page. We have been talking about Elizabeth Gaskell's uh, mid-century Victorian novel, North and South, which is an industrial romance between John Thornton, a master of a mill in uh, Milton, based on Manchester, England, and uh, Margaret Hale, a young lady who comes to live there with her family who initially thinks that he is a bad man, and then falls in love with him, as one does. So uh, we've had some posts on this, some great comments. If you would like to read more of my thoughts, you can subscribe to our Patreon. But we will be talking about it at length here. Uh, before we get into that, Gav, you wanted to say something to our listeners about your schedule. Uh, yes. So I will be at Worldcon this weekend in Dublin. Um, I'm going to be doing four panels, two on Friday and two on Sunday. They cover topics including superhero costumes, queer comics, panel about how pop culture portrays the concept of genius, and also what about fanfic shipping. So we've got lots of topics um, feel free to come say hi, come to my panels. Yeah, welcome. See me there, sci-fi fans. All right, so do that, go see Gav. And now, in that exact same vein, we will be discussing <laughs> North and South, very similar, a novel that was published in 1854 uh, in one of uh, Charles Dickens's many magazines that he published over the course of his career. It was a serialized novel, which you can definitely tell at the second half. Correct. <laughs> Once everyone starts to die. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Many deaths in this novel. A brief little snippet of background about Elizabeth Gaskell, who is not someone I am an expert on, so this will be a very sort of sketchy overview. I also went to her Wikipedia page to get some more background, and let me tell you, it's bad. Bad Wikipedia page. Don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> Not factually informative. No. <laughs> but she was uh, quite a prominent novelist in sort of the mid, early mid-Victorian period, and is probably most well-known now amongst people who are familiar with the literature of this time for her relationship with Charlotte Bronte. She was very, very good friends with her, and she wrote the first biography of Charlotte Bronte at the request of her family which was published in 1857, not long after Charlotte Bronte died, and was a very sort of uh, sanitized version of her life. Not that Charlotte Bronte had a massive scandal or anything, but it was very much a sort of like, what a nice lady in her nice life, Um, and was sort of instrumental in her legend being established for a period of time. So I think the way she was often thought of for a while was as this sort of ancillary figure to Charlotte Bronte's story. Obviously, Charlotte Bronte is one of the most famous novelists in the history of literature, right? Um, And she was known for a very long time as Mrs. Gaskell. That was how she was referred to. And I think that that reflects a lot of her reputation as a lady novelist who wrote these sort of nice, respectable books about ladies. But like literally the first half of this book is like an anthropological study about labor unions and mill work. So there's certainly a slight element of gender <laughs> in how she was perceived. Right. And her first novel, which I actually didn't know, it was I was very interested to find this out when I was reading um, the introduction to my edition today, was it's called Mary Barton. And unlike this novel, is about the working classes exclusively and from the point of view of those characters. So again, her reputation as this sort of like nice lady novelist is interesting. She was notably, however, basically the only notable British female novelist in the 19th century, and I think even through the sort of early 20th century modern period who had children, which doesn't really have any bearing on this book, but I just think is an interesting fact to mention at the start because like that is genuinely true. Like Austen, her contemporary Mariah Edgeworth, who was hugely popular at the time, um, the Brontes, George Eliot, I could go on. Like they just didn't have kids because they're time consuming. Right. <laughs> and she did have several children and still was writing, which 
I'm sure is biographically interesting, but her Wikipedia page sucks. So don't go there. Don't go there. <laughs> um, I wanted to be able to do some more research in general about this, but uh, have had some family issues going on this week, so I didn't. But we have an episode with lots of information planned for you, so I think it will be good anyway. I think the best way to start talking about this book is to give a little brief history of the marriage novel leading up to this point, because although, as you say, it starts off with basically like an anthropological study of labor conditions in manufacturing towns in the north of England, it is very much a marriage novel. Yeah. And like the very first part of the book kicks off, like they're kind of tricking you into thinking you're reading a sort of Austen book. The first section, almost the prologue, is the protagonist, Margaret Hale, is a teenager and her cousin, who's like the more frivolous and sexy one, because there's always like the frivolous, sexy one and then the more serious one, who's the protagonist. <laughs> but her cousin, Edith, has just got married to this very eligible kind of, uh, I think, Navy captain or army captain, you know, a handsome sort of, you know, nice but respectable man. Um, and they're going off and they're happy and, and getting married. But now Margaret has to go and live with her parents and like in that first section, she rejects the proposal of a male friend. And it's a really great rejection scene because like she's trying really hard. She's doing all this like emotional labor to make sure he's not too wounded by it. But she's also like, what did I do to deserve this? <laughs> <laughs> um, she's in this small village, which she loves. Like she lives with her parents. Her father is a local vicar or parson and he is part of this community that's very delightful and pastoral. And then the story actually kicks off kind of after she's rejected this marriage, her father kind of says, oh, I'm, you know, I, I disagree with the philosophy of the church and has a midlife crisis and forces them all to move to Milton for reasons that are somewhat dubious, <laughs> for sure. Even by Victorian standards, people reading this probably would have been like, did you have to make this uh, this political statement and move us all here for no reason? Um, but yeah, kind of it starts off more like, here's a fun marriage novel. And then you get to the section, which is like hundreds of pages of discussions about unionization and dying of like brown lung from inhaling cotton powder. <laughs> yes. And the Mr. Thornton, who is the romantic interest, shows up you know, very early. And it's clear what is happening. But the <laughs> focus of the novel is not really on that until the second half. But it's interesting that this is the way the book is set up. Because Mr. Thornton, who is, again, immediately portrayed as this like sexy man, is very powerful and rich. But he is a manufacturer. Yes. Which they are immediately... Her father, Mr. Hale, thinks he's great. and He's like one of his you know, pupils in the classics or whatever. But Margaret and her mother are immediately disdainful of him because he's not, you know, a gentleman. Because he's he is not a, gentleman. a manufacturer. And he's also not very nice. Right. <laughs> um, but their initial disdain for him stems very much from class prejudice. And yes. this book exists in this sort of funny territory because the marriage novel, which was the sort of main um, high-class novel, I would say, of the 19th century. You have huge numbers of sensation novels as well going on, but those were kind of trash, although they were very popular, and no one reads them anymore because um, most of them were very bad, so they're just not worth the time. Some of them were fun, but um, there's a reason they haven't survived. And they were all written about you know, upper class people, because historically, over the course of the history of literature, books and plays and epic poems were written about the nobility, because that was who was deserving of this, right? And the novel starts in the 18th century, and you mostly have novels about kind of nice ladies and they're like foppish men who they fall in love with. Uh, Samuel Richardson, who wrote probably the two most popular novels of the 19th century does have some sort of like sexy dastardly rogues in a Clarissa and then like a maid servant marrying her, you know, rich boss essentially in Pamela. But uh, Fanny Burney does a lot of the sort of classic stuff in her novels um, that Austen would then inherit in a way by writing about the landed gentry who are not so rich that they weren't identifiable or accessible to her readership, which was mostly sort of upper middle class women. Um, but they weren't 
poor because that's not interesting. And then in the Victorian period, you get novels being written about a wider range of things. Like Dickens wrote a lot about poverty because he had grown up poor, but he's not writing marriage novels. And most of the novels that were targeted at women were marriage novels. And continuing on past this point, so like Eliot is writing later in the uh, century, as is James, they're still writing about rich people and in a sort of classical way. And this novel happens kind of in the middle. So it's not really setting the novel off into a different direction. It's just this weird little thing that happens in the middle of the century where she is doing this odd thing where she has the sort of traditional heroine who is from this sort of middle class, but sort of hoity, sort of hoity-toity family where like they clearly think well of themselves, like they're, they're classy. And then this guy who's rich, but in the wrong way, but also she does this thing where there's all this politics stuff going on and just lumps it all together in the same novel, which is just bizarre. Like, it's just well, like, very Emotionally, strange. it's a romance, right? Because, like, all of the stuff that's happening between the male and female leads is just this, like, anguished romance with sort of misunderstandings that are very silly but overblown because everyone has a lot of feelings. And then the entire world they're in is, like, this very, like, intense kind of like I said it was like so almost like anthropological it's really educational it's kind of teaching you about the emergent middle class in Victorian times and like the ways that like people in different parts of the country are starting to sort of change the way they exist in the world very rapidly so they're kind of all moving at different speeds and there's like a class structure that exists in the north that is completely different from the class structure she's used to in the south and all of this kind of stuff about like the ethics of you know working in a mill and being a mill owner and all this kind of stuff. So it's like, I think on Twitter, when I was like live tweeting reading this book, because, you know, of course I was, uh, <laughs> I was like, this is exactly like a romance anime where like the world building concept is mills. Because it's exactly how <laughs> when you get like an anime show. So the whole story is like extremely tropey, but they're like, it's time for us to tell you all about like, there's like a huge info dump about like tennis or figure skating or whatever the concept is. Except this time it's like, wow, I just love Victorian mills so much. <laughs> It's just really interesting the degree to which she puts all this information in because I, so I was reading the intro again to the edition I have, which is the Oxford University Press edition. And the intro was written by um, Sally Shuttleworth, who's a great, great scholar of this period. And um, she has a lot of information in here about the writing that was happening um, sort of in the press about industrialization at the time. And, essentially everybody was just like these people are scum these horrible you know working class rats whatever like there was not a lot of support for the workers struggle essentially at this time and she both a has a huge amount of detailed knowledge of what was going on in these places. So one of the things that Shuttleworth in this intro points out is that there's a lot of detail about the health hazards of working in these mills. So one of the characters who gets a lot of time who is a working class person is this girl, Bessie Higgins, who is around Margaret's age, but obviously has lived a very different life from her. And Margaret kind of befriends her and um, clearly is very troubled by the fact that this young woman is she's dying and is just sort of miserable because she's lived this life of just like working in mills and now is like at home dying because her life sucks and the specific thing that has happened to her is that they have this stuff called fluff in the mills which is obviously just like the detritus that comes off of the cotton right and it gets into your lungs and then you die yeah and kind of like the key conflict between the masters and the men of the mill town kind of in the first section of the book is you can have this kind of ventilation system installed which they refer to as the wheel which basically it blows out some of the fluff so they can have better working conditions and then so like some of them are like we should have a strike to get this wheel and then other workers are like but I want I don't want a wheel here because when you swallow more fluff it means that you're not hungry at work and this kind of one of these sort of <laughs> horrifying workplace disputes which also kind of made me very curious about why they didn't cover their faces. I mean clearly this was not just not something that was yeah. done right. Yeah. Well, also I mean if you don't have 
But I mean, they know that inhaling the fluff is the problem. Right. But I'm thinking, I was thinking about this too. And I guess if you don't have like a more advanced ventilation mask thing, you just putting a handkerchief over your face makes it harder to breathe. If you're in there for 10 hours, then that's not going to be great. Yeah. Either, right. But it obviously seems fairly self-explanatory to us, even if we don't know the details of this, that like working in a factory will probably have bad air conditions you know, yes. a factory of this type, <laughs> but that the fact that she was aware of all of these details and was writing about them in the disputes is evidence that she really knew what she was talking about because most people outside of this, you know, community and milieu were not paying attention to I mean, this. I was thinking kind of when I was once I kind of knew more about Elizabeth Gaskell's, Gaskell's life, like, you know, you see kind of there's obviously parallels between her and Margaret. Um, like Margaret is the daughter of a former parson and uh, and Elizabeth Gaskell was married to a vicar or a parson. And kind of in the community at that point, that would be similar to being a social worker. Like as the wife of the local town vicar, your job is basically to reach out to the community, make sure that people in need are getting help and like to visit and stuff. And at the beginning of the book, when they're still in Helston, uh, Margaret's like original home in the countryside, you know, she's really used to being friends with everyone in the community and she visits them. And then like once she moves to Milton, you know, there's this really amusingly awkward scene at the beginning when she first meets Bessie Higgins and her father and she's sort of like offers to go and visit them with a basket kind of thinking of them as like the deserving poor and it's her job to take care of them and obviously they, they find that like really embarrassing for them and it's like that's not how things work here because like the way the relationship between like the working class and the middle class is different her job is that she's kind of this outreach person who has like a foot in both worlds and wants to kind of share the plight of the working class more with the upper classes. By the time you get to like later on in the book, she's kind of the person who bridges the gap between Mr. Thornton, the mill owner, and then the workers who've been striking and are going through all these problems. And Elizabeth Gaskell in real life was literally just doing that on like a much bigger scale than anyone possibly could have done because she is through the means of this overall romance, which obviously is like a massively popular genre. She's now teaching like thousands of people all about these kind of classes that divides of working conditions that they're otherwise only going to be hearing about through really sort of propagandistic newspaper articles about, you know, the scummy, disgusting poor. Yes. And I think that that dynamic makes the book's kind of ambivalence about its political topics interesting because it is propagandistic in certain ways, but she is also quite ambivalent about the topics she's discussing and you cannot tell, or certainly I can't tell the degree to which she is hedging what she's talking about because she doesn't want to seem too radical and the degree to which it's that she can't quite decide herself or what exactly she's trying to do. And I think that makes some of the book frustrating, but also I think that's kind of what makes it interesting because it just exists in this sort of liminal space between a novel that is just like a, you know, polemic about how the upper classes are bad, which can be, you know, good and enjoyable. And then a book that's just about how rich people are fun to read about, which I mean, Austin's yeah. great, but like <laughs> this book exists in this weird kind of netherworld where she talks a lot about, how the working classes are really disadvantaged and she has a couple characters who are from that world who are very very sympathetic but then also has some characters who really manifest the sort of stereotypes of the sort of lazy dirty you know irresponsible poor and the union she also is quite ambivalent about so like the central again conflict of the first part of the book is that the union is striking and the one of the characters is sort of explaining why the union is important and he explains it in a very compelling way and you know to modern people who understand labor issues that are pro unions like obviously we're going to be like yes the union is good and then there are other characters who are like the union is a tyrant like it's so terrible and she doesn't really come down on either side exactly in a way that feels very sort of confused but in a way that i find interesting and then obviously, like, the romantic lead of the book is <laughs> the guy who owns the fucking mill. So there's just this strange... I mean, like, the central you know, conflict for any 
modern reader I think is like just the fact that it's very hard to reconcile the two halves of the book which is that Mr Thornton is the fucking mill owner and for like 90% of the book I kept being like well he'll have to be more morally redeemed by the end and like he isn't really <laughs> like they, they the love story is like amazing but like it doesn't end with him being like oh you know I've seen the error of my ways like it's like he makes working conditions somewhat better at the mill that he still owns because like and like realistically of course that's what it is like because otherwise it would probably just be absurd but at the same time it's just like very hard to engage with but also it's doubly sort of amusing to me in the context of the BBC miniseries which we're actually going to do a Patreon episode on. I've only watched the first episode so far but for those who are not aware the BBC miniseries revitalised the popularity of this book like 10 years ago. It stars Richard Armitage as Mr Thornton. This was basically his breakout role like obviously he'd had like a solid career before this. He's like been working for ages but this show you know, the BBC made it. They were like, it's probably not going to be that popular because it's not like this is an Austin book. But then as soon as they aired the first episode, the women of Britain spoke out as one and were like, we want more Richard Armitage. So like <laughs> that made his career. But he's this absolutely like incredibly smouldering hero and like just such an incredible romantic lead role. And people fucking love that show. And like the way they talk about it is always about romance, right? And having watched the first episode, they actually go way harder than the book, right? His introductory scene <laughs> is Mr. Thornton physically beating one of his employees. He seems awful. Like he's incredibly good at smouldering and I absolutely think we've been talking about. But it is so explicit that he is just this like awful like workhouse owner. He's fucking awful, like terrible rich man who's exploiting the poor. And when I kind of hear people talking about this show, either people are like, well, I completely understand this and are sort of have a very self-aware attitude where it's like, look, we know. Or people literally don't remember any of the class stuff. Like, you just sort of like erased it. And like, also people who've read the book, like I was speaking to a friend about this recently and she was just like, wow, I don't remember any of this stuff about like being cruel to the mill workers. I only remember how good the romance is. So, you know, gotta get in the right headspace. I have not rewatched the show yet. I read this initially because I watched the show. I was I yeah, was in the course sure of doing I was in the course of doing my my master's in Victorian literature, so I watched it because I was in the zone, right? And then I was like, oh, I should probably actually read this book. But I'm really curious to rewatch it because I remember I find this book super interesting, but I remember enjoying the show more because their romance is better. But I'm interested to watch it again because I really don't remember the details of this. My memory of it is that they basically adjust the romance to... I mean, presumably to be more central. Well, yes, but also to make it sort of more comprehensible in a way to the modern viewer. Because this book is very much like of its time in a obviously clearly it's about the political issues right but i think the romance is actually like as you say not in it as much as it sort of seems like it should be and it's very one-sided for like most of the Mm -hmm. book and it's just all predicated very much on concepts of victorian morality and romance that are just not how we think about things anymore. And so if I'm remembering correctly, I think they kind of change things to adjust it for the modern viewer and also have some self-awareness about the stuff with the politics. Everyone speaks very highly of the end of the miniseries. So I look forward to watching those. It's four episodes long, so I'm going to watch those three episodes. We record on Patreon Mm -hmm. and I will find out why everyone is so emotional about the ending. (laughs) But obviously they can't in the show either resolve the central issue which is that yeah he owns the mill so i mean good in episode one there was i was just like this man is a vampire because there's all these like vampire shots of richard armitage sort of watching creepily from the shadows and like staring at her and there's this amazing scene in the book kind of towards the beginning the first or second time they've met you know where they take tea together with margaret's parents and he is just already obsessed with her like he hasn't fully acknowledged that he's in love with her yet but he's like he sees her father kind of jokingly picks up her hand and uses her fingers as sugar tongs. And he's like, oh, if I, if only I could use Margaret's fingers as sugar tongs. And she's like, this is truly the greatest thing I've ever read. Like all of the parts that are from his point of view were just killing me. Like there's a scene where 
he is rejected by Margaret. Like he actually declares his love really early in the book, which kind of surprised me. Like about halfway through, he tells her he's in love with her and is kind of hoping that, you know, she'll agree to marry him. And she's just like, no, we barely know each other and I don't think much of you. And of course, this is awful for him. But then his response, which just feels like it's incredibly relatable to so many, is that he goes off and he's just like really upset. He's just standing at a bus stop feeling really bad about himself. And then a bus shows up and he's too socially awkward to be like, I'm just standing here. So he gets on the bus, stays on the bus until he just reaches a random town, gets off and stands in a field for the rest of the day, feeling sorry for himself, goes home and tells his mother, no other shall ever love me. (laughs) It's just like, you're 30. (laughs) But also, okay, you've got a lot of feelings. (laughs) He has so many feelings. It's, It's so good. So yes, the gender stuff in this book is just, oh, it's so good. It's, there's, it's such a rich text in this, <laughs> in this way. So we had some really good stuff on Patreon. There's a really good long comment from uh, Madison about the way that this book is really located in the nexus of a period where the idea of what, what like, a man was was shifting in a major way. Yeah, and they literally have really explicit conversations about the concept of being a man and basically your identity as what you should be doing and your kind of duty to the world and being an upstanding man, and then the concept of being a gentleman, which is completely about class. Yes. And so back to what I was saying before about the sort of spread of these marriage novels, right? In the you know late 18th century, you would have these novels where the male romantic leads often were these kind of foppish upper-class men who now as a reader like i i'm not an expert in that period but i've read enough that you read them and you're like really like that guy (laughs) okay and then austin's heroes aren't like that exactly but they tend not to be like brooding you know like stormy mr rochester types you get to mr rochester and then that's where this kind of picks up a bit it's one of the sort of criticisms that people have of North and South, which doesn't bother me at all, because who gives a shit, is that it's very much modeled on Pride and Prejudice in certain ways. So obviously in Pride and Prejudice, Darcy proposes sort of midway through also, and Elizabeth is like, fuck off, like go away. And then he's very sad. And the same thing happens as you were describing in this. And I think obviously there is a huge influence of that book here, but also, even though Darcy is kind of sullen for a lot of that book, he's not in any way on the level of this guy or Mr. Rochester. So I think Thornton is kind of like a marriage of Darcy and Rochester in that Rochester is much more explicitly kind of like sexy and dangerous and whatever. And uh, this was a kind of new thing, at least in the um, pop cultural, if you will, landscape of this time. And she makes a huge deal of it in the way that she's writing, which is really interesting because so much of the novel is about this other stuff. Like she'll have long, long sections where they're just talking about labor unions or whatever. And specifically, there's a lot of really physical language and description about both of them. So Thornton is... Something that really cracked me up is like in the... Just right at the beginning when they're both introduced, you know, separately, they're both kind of described in terms where it's like, oh, they're not that good looking, you know? (laughs) it's just like you know margaret you know she's got a bit of a strong chin and like you wouldn't necessarily call her beautiful unlike edith and then with mr thornton it's like he's this big like hulking brute of a man (laughs) and then it's like and then every single description for the whole of the rest of the book is just like how hot they are (laughs) Uh, yeah at least charlotte bronte with jane eyre has the decency to be like yeah, they're not attractive. And then every time they just she describes them subsequently, Mr. Rochester's like, look how horrible looking I am. <laughs> like, <laughs> I I loved this because it but it was also like very much the same as sort of when someone goes out of the way out of their way to be like, Oh, I don't think that guy's that hot when they first right. meet them. And it's like, so your first judgment here is like you want to really make it clear like what level of hotness you find this person. <laughs> <laughs> But the physical thing is is interesting because it wasn't how people were writing books so much. And the idea of women as sort of like hysterical physical beings was the standard of Victorian science, right? Like women were crazy and their uteruses made them nuts. I mean, it was 
that was what people thought. And there are a lot of descriptions of Margaret in this in a physical way, but she's not writing about her as a lunatic, obviously, right? It's just that this is how how she exists in the world. And I um, mean, she faints a bunch, but also like her whole character arc is all I mean she starts off really sensible she's sensible from the start like she's naive but she always makes sort of sensible decisions and like her outlook on the world is quite mature and her arc is all about you know becoming more mature like intentionally gaining knowledge about the world around her trying to help people being like a supportive woman in the household and eventually learning how to be responsible with her finances yes so, so <laughs> exactly I, I can't add anything to that but I want to share something from this introduction that um, Sally Shuttleworth wrote, which she says, Gaskell created in Margaret a very physical heroine. And here's the beautiful detail. Dickens, who was, again, publishing and editing this book, had objected to all of the stiflings, hard plungings, lunging, and other convulsions, and had removed them in the proof. But Gaskell insisted on their retention. <laughs> So I just love the idea of Charles Dickens being like, I don't like this, like, get rid of all of it. <laughs> and Elizabeth Gaskell being like, um, no, that's, that's staying in. So clearly this is a really important part of the book to her, and it made, you know, her male editor, uh, Charles Dickens, very uncomfortable. But it is really important in how the two of them interact with each other. And for Mr. Thornton, it's very important in terms of how the female readers would grasp him and find him appealing like he is supposed to be a very sexy man and they don't actually converse very much like they have a couple sort of arguments about manufacturing near the beginning of the book but for the most part when they are in each other's presence they're just sort of like or Mr. Thornton actually is just staring at her from across the room. Or also there's all these scenes where it's like he's, to make it really clear that he's always knows where she is in the room and like he's constantly attuned to her presence and it's like thinking of her even if he's not watching her directly and that sort of thing. And it's just like he is just the ultimate of that very, that particular type of kind of pining, brooding hero. Yes. Uh, it's great. And it's also like so designed around certain romantic tropes that women find desirable and obviously like to a certain extent what we find desirable in leading men is very much shaped by all of the pop culture we consume which is why so many people love romances where the man's behavior is essentially really threatening stalking because that's like the end point of all of these romances where some guy is like following someone around and is completely obsessed like about two-thirds into this book there's kind of a period where She's already rejected him and he's completely obsessed with her and he is kind of doing stuff from afar to try and help her, um, which is obviously, you know, wonderful. And then he gets really consumed with jealousy because he's seen her with another man, which is actually her brother, but he doesn't know that. So he's like very, very jealous. And there is a point there where I was just like, you could tip this another direction and he would just murder her. Like he would, I mean, and it's like his character, he isn't actually like kind of portrayed as a violent man in the book. And the book actually kind of goes out of its way to show that he is very gentle with his female relatives. And like, he is like a good person in his personal life, even if in a structural way with the male, it's like very different because it's like, oh, he's a bulldog of a man and never changes his mind. But you could definitely just full on have him murder her about <laughs> three quarters of the way through that book. And it would be like, yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> well, what she does, which saves him from being just like yeah. Edward Cullen, right? <laughs> is she goes into his interior monologue and what she does there is give him these sort of traditionally feminine qualities of just like extremely overwrought emotion and sensitivity, which is interesting when you add them to his sort of brute physical characteristics, right? So you're not getting with the earlier romantic heroes either of those things. And then with Rochester, who I think is the closest analog to him in many ways, because Jane Eyre is a first-person narrative, you are only getting Jane's point of view. And so Bronte has to write Rochester in a slightly more, well, in a much more external way, because you have to get everything that's going on with him just from Jane's point of view. So he is very verbose, unlike Thornton. And he's very melodramatic, but like it's all coming out of him. Whereas with Thornton, it's all repressed and interior because she's actually letting you inside of his head. And that is much more sort of classically feminine. I'm using like air quotes here, right? But it is very atypical for men in novels 
like this should be written with this level of just like unbelievable brooding angst. And the way it's written, even though he's so obsessed with Margaret and then is really jealous of her, he is never aggressive towards her. And in fact, no. is obsessively like, I am not going to change my behavior in terms of like going over to their house because he goes over there to see her father, whom he's friends with. Like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna not go. I'm not gonna go more. I'm just there's just a lot of like self-analysis. Like he's surprisingly self-aware. Yes. Like he's very aware of how into her she is. He, um, he is. And also he's just sort of like, well, she doesn't love me. And he, she, she never could and all this stuff. And it's like the only person who's confessing anything to is his mother, which is very entertaining because she doesn't approve at all. And it's like this haughty lass is not good enough for my son. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. And it completely makes sense that, like women would have loved this at the time because you yeah. get like both elements that previously hadn't really been available, right? And like no real men are acting like this, so <laughs> great. I mean, obviously this isn't so much the case now. Obviously romance is still a female dominated genre, but like definitely at this point, like this book really illustrates kind of the completely different spheres that women and men were operating on in a society. And that really does make it clear why male novelists would not have been writing the type of romances, or romances in general, but like the type of romances that women would necessarily be into, because this is like a rare example of a woman who's doing a story that is specifically like doing a realistic portrayal of what it's like to be living as a woman in the real world, while also being aware of what women find attractive. And like, even now, when men and women socialize together freely, (laughs) loads of guys just have like wildly inaccurate ideas of what women want. I mean, obviously, women don't necessarily want, you know, a solid male owner to take them in hand. But like, you know what I mean? Like, this is, it understands the female gaze, like, completely intrinsically, while also being like, here's what it's like to be a woman. And I think my favourite point about that in the book is kind of comes towards the end. Margaret's mother dies, and there's a period after her mother dies where her father has gone out of town. And for basically the first time in the entire book, she's got some freedom. And it's not like she's like, oh yeah, I'm going to party. It's just like, she's like, my God, it's so fucking good to just sit in the house by myself in total silence and do nothing. And I feel like there's a lot of kind of stereotypes about people are like, oh yeah, you know, in this period, there'd be all these women who just do nothing all day and they're just trapped. And it's like, actually her life is really busy. She's constantly doing all this work. Like she's organizing her family because like her father is a bit of an idiot and her mother is ailing or really neurotic or both. And she's kind of doing, she does a lot of the work of kind of organizing how to get the family from their old home to their new home. And she's always kind of reaching out to people in her community to try and help people because she's really altruistic. And then she gets to the point where like her mother's died and her father's out of town and she like finally has a chance to just be like, I'm going to chill. I'm going to sit down and do nothing. (laughs) Well, and this is what's interesting about having it be a sort of middle class or a bit upper middle class family as opposed to, I mean, again, Austin's books aren't about like the tippy top of the social hierarchy, but most of them would be a higher level than this and then you know something like Middlemarch or Daniel Deronda which are Elliot's big marriage novels which are you know don't end happily but um they're also mainly about uh higher class people than this they don't have to worry about stuff like this it's not like the women in those books don't do anything and certainly in sensibility they have lots of money problems and are having to sort of deal with their own issues but Emma for instance who is the richest Austin heroine but like her entire life is just like, I'm bored, so I'm going to fuck with everybody else's love lives, right? Like, there's no... And if you're a bit lower down the scale than that, you know, it's not like she's working in a mill, but her life isn't just, like, sitting around and doing nothing. And the sort of conception of women from the past as being trapped in the house with nothing to do in virtually all cases is not accurate. They weren't necessarily working in jobs if they weren't, again, in the lower classes, but it was a lot of work to be running a house and dealing with social obligations and dealing with the men who were often incompetent, as in this case, right? And um, because there isn't any social flexibility in terms of being like, yeah, I don't actually want to deal with this, I'm going to go off and you know, be a lawyer or whatever, right? Like, that's not an option. You're just kind of stuck. And the book is 
not particularly radical about that either. Like Margaret is definitely presented as a very dutiful daughter and not in any way like a radical person. But I think that section is really interesting because you do get the sense of like, oh, yes, this has been a lot of obligation for her dealing with all of this stuff. And And she's like 19. (laughs) Right. And there are all of these scenes with her father. The character of her father is super interesting also, especially in contrast with Thornton, right? Where he does have this sense of moral authority. Like she's very pointed about always being like well yes but of course he did the right thing by leaving the church because it was what he believed and like his friend mr bell who comes in near the end who's kind of her surrogate father in a way also is like yes he definitely did the right thing but like as the reader you're kind of like no he definitely did not he's an intellectual in the sense that he's interested in the classics and he's tutoring people but he's kind of an intellectual lightweight in terms of actually thinking up his own ideas right because like at the beginning of the book obviously he makes this huge life-changing decision based on uh, conflict with the church but the conflict is intentionally portrayed as like it's not like a really intense moral schism it's like one that's kind of inside baseball you know especially like when I was watching the first episode of the tv show it was like they really kind of lean into the fact that this is like an incredibly stupid reason for them to like uproot their lives and move to this place that's really awkward and horrifying for them whereas Margaret is just portrayed as consistently much smarter, you know? And it's like Mr. Thornton likes talking to her father because he doesn't really get to have conversations about, you know, books and history with anyone else. But he likes talking to Margaret because Margaret is inquisitive. And then once you get into the point where they're kind of all socialising together, you know, Margaret's father is very easily swayed by his male peers, you know? It's like he's meant to be this sort of really caring, dutiful, moral pastor, but he's surrounded by all these mill owners. So he's kind of siding with the mill owners, even though he's like, well, you know, obviously we wouldn't want the poor to be in trouble. And I understand why you want to give some money to these people who are starving because of the strike. But in the end, you know, I've been speaking to Mr. Thornton a lot and I agree with his point of view and it's very kind of equivocal about it. Whereas Margaret, she's kind of more aware of her own ignorance, but is like trying hard to understand more and like to form her own opinions. And there's also several scenes where you see kind of the classic sort of dinner time divide of like all the men go off somewhere to smoke cigars and have conversations about politics and all the women stay together in a room and are having very frivolous conversations that are quite bitchy. And in a modern book, there's a way in which that seems more like it's about internalized sexism. But this book has plenty of scenes where Margaret has positive relationships with women and is kind of having conversations with Bessie about like the difference in their lives and stuff. But it does probably seem like it's pretty realistic for her to be relatively alone as someone who is openly interested in kind of the men's side of things without being rebellious, you know? Yes, I think that's definitely the case. And the stuff with her dad, when he decides he's going to move them from their nice little town to this like nightmare industrial basically arbitrarily yes and she has to organize most of the trip and he's like um i can't tell your mom so can you do that for me please which is i mean where to even begin i mean this book is i mean i realize i said emotional labor right up top at the beginning of the podcast but like this book is a great study in like the concept of what emotional labor is and sort of invisible women's work like she is consistently working harder than her father throughout the whole book even though he is technically the breadwinner yes and then there's some there's some other situation like that i mean that's the worst one but there's something else like that later on where she has to do something for him that's just a nightmare and then her mother is ill and dying later and they're all like well but father can't know because it would be too stressful for him so then she's dealing with like all of this and not telling him because i mean so she's the person who has to be sort of shouldering all of this And then she saves Mr. Thornton's mill with her own inheritance money at the end of the book. (laughs) Well, yes. So this, the the fact that this is the way the book resolves is so unbelievably fascinating to me. And I think reflective of so much of what is happening in the novel and the romance stuff particularly. So Mr. Bell, who's come in and is kind of, again, acts as her surrogate father a bit, dies and he has all of this money up in Milton and she inherits it and like both of her parents are also dead by this point like everyone dies in this novel but she she remains standing and now rich and Mr. Thornton's mill has almost gone under um, as a result of the strike and so he's a bit humbled by this but is like well I will just take up a job somewhere else as like not a master anymore and it's all very angsty <laughs> and she decides that she's going to bail him out using her money And this is obviously 
interpreted by him correctly as a declaration of love. And the book ends quite abruptly on this scene. And um, it's so perfect that the novel ends with a transaction in this way. And I was thinking about it and I wrote about this more extensively on our Patreon, but like most of their relationship is made up of these kind of transactional situations, right? So like she borrows a waterbed from them for her mother. Like he sends over things like fruit to her mother when she's dying. He kind of gets her out of legal trouble because he's also, of course, one of the magistrates in the town because why not have the same five people be in charge of everything? And on and on and on. And it's all kind of this exchange of not literally money, but this sort of back and forth between them instead of them having tense conversations that are like sexually charged or whatever, which I think would be more appealing to the modern viewer or reader. I mean, I find it very appealing. (laughs) So, but this is what I think is interesting and very much tied to the time. It's not that it's not appealing, but I think it's very rooted in that period when it wasn't necessarily as easy for men and women to just like go out together and have a conversation, right? Like it all is taking place in this sort of coded way. It's like, what is your love language? The love language of this book is, of course, acts of service. Right. Because many of the other love languages are not available to the Victorian suitor. (laughs) Yes. And it's a book about money and manufacturing and commerce. And so the way they interact with each other is essentially an exchange. And the ultimate final act is literally an exchange of funds. And he is, like, just overwhelmed by this. But... It's this almost kind of perverse situation because she now has the power with the money, but is then like, oh, I'm not good enough. And he's still like the big hulking man and literally is like... I mean, she's like essentially proposing to him, but it's this this kind of a much more roundabout conversation. And I was like, when that was like literally the final pages of the book, I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) Because like, I'm used to reading romances where there's like, if it's this type of slow-bound romance, you have like at the very least a fucking kiss at the end, which of course they can't have. But like, she shows up and it's instead of being like, oh, I want to clear up this misunderstanding or I want to know if this misunderstanding is cleared up. She kind of just presents him with all this paperwork that she has prearranged to be like, I would like to transfer this money and like, I can be the silent investor in your business. And then he correctly interprets this as a confession of love. But even at that point, like he is still the more passionate one. And then they sort of agree to get married, but it's sort of talked around in this really fascinating way rather than it being this huge sort of swooping ending. The book just fucking ends. (laughs) Yeah, so he figures out what's going on. It says, she was most anxious to have it all looked upon in the light of a mere business arrangement in which the principal advantage would be on her side. But he, of course, knows what's up. And he goes, his voice was hoarse and trembling with tender passion. As he said, Margaret, and he just like says her name many times. And what's the best, the best one? He knelt by her side to bring his face to a level with her ear and whispered, long dash, panted out the words. And I mean, it's just like, oh my God, please calm down. But again, this sort of like very physical thing has to be tied to the sort of monetary exchange because that's what this book is about. And then she tells him that she's not good enough. And he says, not good enough. Don't mock my own deep feeling of unworthiness. And I was like, oh, goodness. (laughs) Okay. So it's simultaneously like quite different, again, from the standard resolution of a romance like this. And then also, you're almost not getting enough, but it's like more raw than is typical of these books, which I imagine was appealing, again, to people of the time. I think that the book, if it has a structural flaw, I think that they need to, to talk to each other more and probably have more build up to the end, which again, I think the show does a bit better. Also, this was serialized. Yes. but And she actually, it was shorter when it was serialized and she added some stuff to it when it was published as a two volume book because she felt that it was too abrupt. And I think you can feel a bit of that abruptness, but it's very interesting in terms of the way that it all kind of comes together and the resistance to doing things in a typical way. I do think she's taking a lot from Bronte. Also, if people have read 
Jane Eyre, they will recognize some of this. But also the scene where they finally get together in Jane Eyre is like 15 pages long. <laughs> it just goes on and on and on and on because she knew what the people wanted. Fascinating, fascinating novel. Just a lot going on. I'd love to, you know, read or hear the opinion of someone who genuinely has no kind of background in the British class system. Because obviously not only do I know the history, it also feels instinctively extremely, just fully, completely comprehensible to me. I mean, pretty much all British people have unacknowledged class neuroses, and I think I have much more acknowledged class neuroses in like very absurd ways that I often like recognize myself and I'm just like, you fucking idiot. <laughs> um <laughs> but like even the stuff that like Morgan was saying, like you kind of describing Margaret as middle class. Like obviously it's kind of a terminology thing, but the thing that's fascinating about this book is it's like you can't just say this person is middle class. So like for American listeners, middle class currently in Britain is not what would be referred to as a middle class in America. In Britain, middle class is essentially posh. So like working class or just like basically the majority of people. And then middle class would be going to private school, being in like a professional career. So like doctors and lawyers would be middle class. And then kind of the upper middle class are people who are more aristocratic. And then you have like the actual aristocracy, which is like a tiny minority of people. Nowadays, kind of like that's much more blurred, especially because millennials <laughs> and just economic stuff has changed like drastically over the past 20 years. But in this book with Mr. Thornton, he is basically the introduction of a new type of class like that was just emerging at this point in British history. So Margaret and her family they do not have money even before her father loses his job. They don't even have money at that point, but they still kind of, for the whole book, think of themselves as essentially above Mr. Thornton's family. You know, they are, they're not kind of aristocrats because obviously they are just this family of people who are living around, you know, like a little vicar's house basically, but they kind of are able to interact with people who are in the upper classes. And like, you get the impression that her cousin Edith is more upper class, like he's marrying this uh, military officer and they have this sort of social circle in London, which would be more posh people. And then once they move to Manchester, like everyone who is there is working in a different kind of working class environment. Um, they also feel more independent because it's not this sort of feudal situation where they're working in the fields. They're all living as part of this new industrial landscape. But also the people who live in this town just immediately are just like, what the fuck is going on? Because it's completely absurd for this family of three people to be bringing a servant with them. Like they have a servant who is effectively part of the family, Mrs. Dixon, who's devoted to Margaret's mother. But also they want to hire a maid as well. And there's just this whole sequence in the first kind of quarter of the book where they're trying to hire a maid to work with Miss Dixon and all these women in Milton slash Manchester are just like interviewing essentially for the role. And there's just this huge kind of social clash because they'll just be like, why are you asking me to work for so little money? And like, why aren't you letting me do this? And then Dixon is just horrified at how, how rude they are. Then Mr. Thornton is much richer and more powerful than any of them, but they're really snobbish towards him because they're just like, well, he's this jumped up man who has just made his money rather than living off money that you're getting off inheritance or some kind of like land ownership or something. So it's this weird social clash that doesn't exist anymore now but exists in a different form and people are just as weird about it like in contemporary Britain. Like we have such a bizarre class system. It's so intense still. I mean, he's Duvo Riche, right? Yeah. That, yeah. that exists here too, right? That's oh, sort yeah. of like, ugh. Right? <laughs> you know? But what's interesting in the book is that they're so disdainful of him at the beginning because he's not a gentleman. But then by the end, Margaret's like, he is a gentleman. So this idea, it's not that the idea of what a gentleman is, she abandons because it's outdated. Is that It's that she decides... She like that broadens it right. to recognize exactly. that he is a good person. Yes. And he is also the most powerful person in the book. Yes. Like he is the local magistrate, like you said, he is the boss of everyone and her power is all social, like the all the power she has and her power, she changes the town for the better first by essentially softening him in the kind of classic women's role and kind of persuading him to see one of the kind of workers on a more human level, but then kind of changes him by getting an inheritance. So it's like, oh, Okay, then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, the fact that she winds up with the monetary power at the end of the book is both 
very satisfying because you're like, haha. But then there's also something I think that's a little sour about it because she reinstitutes him, right? Yes. And she now is in a position where she is the authority figure in this situation. Like she's been critical of yeah. him the entire time as the person who is running this mill. She is now the Grimes who is visiting Elon Musk's Tesla factories to discuss unions <laughs> with the workers. <laughs> Yes. And it's sort of like these, all these novels have a lot of, and, and romantic comedies later on, which are the sort of successor of these books in the culture, have a huge amount of anxiety about money and about, you know, marriage. And um, usually the anxiety is men marrying women with more money, like that's not acceptable. And that is reversed here. In yeah. a way, or like a marrying, kind of the Downton Abbey thing of marrying Americans, yes. to save the family seat, <laughs> right? Um, and it it sort of works out in this book, okay, because he had money and was powerful, and so she's like restoring him to that, right? And she didn't have the money; it has just come into it, so it's almost like she's restoring things to balance. But this happens in Emma also. The idea of um, people marrying too far outside of their class is too much for the novels to kind of handle. Like women can marry up to a certain degree, but that's it. And the sort of class hierarchies have to be maintained. And that's definitely what happens in this book is that she gets the money. She makes sure that he still has his seat of power at his factory. And yes, he's made working conditions a little bit better for his men and things will continue on and his factory will make money. And you're like, okay, <laughs> great. You know, um, which, again, this is the conflict of the book, is that the romance is really satisfying. And then you sort of think about it and you're like, oh, all of this other stuff is... The Bessie Higginses of the world are still dying yep. of uh, cotton consumption. Yes. Which, again, I don't even know if that's a critique of the novel because it's really hard to tell no. to what degree she's... Like, Gaskell is doing it on purpose, you know? And I always think, like, Mariah Edgeworth's books from earlier in the century are like this, too. I think it can be really hard as a modern reader to know how much we're kind of projecting back onto a book. I mean, something that felt more obvious to me is the fact that she is, this book is very intentionally open-minded about religion. Because they have these conversations about religion. And it's much more sort of flexible about the idea of what Christianity is, like both in terms of, you know, religious identity and also sort of the morality, obviously, of like being a good Christian. Margaret and her father are both Christians, but like her father, the entire book is kicked off by him having this religious conflict. But also Margaret's brother converts to Catholicism because his uh, fiance is a Spanish Catholic. And then also there's sort of... Uh, Mr. Higgins, the mill worker that she befriends, is sort of at first he is kind of, it seems like he's atheist, and then sort of he moves over to having different opinions, and there's this scene where where Mr. Higgins and Margaret and her father pray together, and they're all kind of, one of them, like, they describe Mr. Higgins as an infidel, and then, then uh, the father is sort of like, he's like a rebel against the church or whatever, so it's like, kind of, she intentionally puts together these characters who have explicitly different ideas of religious faith, and it isn't judgmental. And it's like, look, these people can all live together. Which is more kind of rebellious than making an explicit statement about the politics of mill workers, which the book kind of avoids, like you said. Yes, I agree with that, although I do think she's very anti-Catholic. <laughs> I think the Catholic, I think it's bad that he converts to Catholicism and she hates the Irish, which is very apparent in this book. Oh yes, the treatment of the Irish in this book is 100% on par with everything but public opinion yep. from that period <laughs> yes. but otherwise i agree with you it's interesting that i mean she was clearly very religious and there's a lot of religious sentiment in the book but she's not particularly didactic about the various characters interactions with each other which is interesting there's a lot going on on various thematic levels in the book which is fascinating i want to read more of her novels she had some other kind of more upper class books as well, and along with the sort of industrial stuff. So I think that would be interesting. Um, and I'm excited to rewatch the show, which again, we will have a Patreon episode about. Yes, a bit later, because I will be away for four yes. days at Worldcon. Just a reminder, come see me at Worldcon. <laughs> Our regular episode next week, at the request of a Patreon subscriber, will be 
the Tom Cruise vehicle, Rock of Ages, from around five it's years ago. It's a random one. I'm very curious to find out why this one has been so specifically requested. I think the idea was, uh, as Tom Cruise scholars, that we will have some insight into what the fuck was going on here. I do remember at the time <laughs> that everyone was like, what is this movie? What is Tom Cruise doing? Which I have to say, I am always interested to know what the fuck Tom Cruise is doing. One of my my deeper interests in in life, pop culturally. So, I'm curious. Yes, we will be discussing that next week. Again, if you want to read the blog post, hear the extra episode on the miniseries for this when we put it up, you can find those at our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gabby, where can our readers find you and your work and your updates about Worldcon on the internet? Yes, you can find me on the Daily Dot, like my writing on the Daily Dot. You can find me on Twitter where you should be able to find my schedule for Worldcon, but you will also be able to find me on the Worldcon timetable page by looking up my name. And I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. We are on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.